Welcome to Know My Faith. My guest again is Dr. Egal Giaman. And Egal, thanks for taking time to join us. Shalom, Rob. It's good nice. to be here. Yes, nice to see you again. Uh, we'll do it in person one day. Yeah, God willing. <laughs> You've got a new course on coming up on Zechariah Online, which which I am seriously thinking about signing up for because it's at a it's at a good time for me. It's about ten o'clock on a Monday morning uh, for me, so that's a that's a great time. Uh, but this Zechariah is a fascinating book. I mean, I've just been reading it ahead of this podcast, and. There's so much prophecy. I mean, it's a book of pro- prophecy, but there's so much in there. Right, right, yeah. I'm I'm myself fascinated about the book of Zechariah. Um, as uh, when I was doing my graduate studies as a doctoral student at Wycliffe College, the University of Toronto, I took one of the classes in the book of Zechariah with Professor Christopher Seitz. And, um, and one of my papers that I wrote on, for his course was actually on the interpretation of Zechariah by... Uh, David Baron, uh, who was a Messianic Jewish uh, scholar, uh, British scholar. And um, to be honest with you, Rob, the book of Zechariah is one of the most uh, complex and yet fascinating books that we find in the Hebrew Bible, uh, specifically in the post-exilic era. So we have Zechariah, we have Malachi and Haggai. So Zechariah stands out as the longest of the minor prophets of the post-exilic mm. period. And at the same time, we see him as a as a, the harbinger of the coming of the Messiah. So we have lots of um, messianic anticipation, real fervor, uh, believing that God will come and intervene in the affairs of the world. Yeah, but when you, when you talk about the coming of the Messiah, we're talking about both comings because he prophesies both the first right. and the second coming. And again, um, is it uh, is it chapter is chapter nine? Uh, Behold, your king. You know, riding on a donkey. So in, in this little passage of about maybe four verses from verse 9 to 13, you've got the, the first coming and the second coming exactly. in this one passage. Yeah, definitely. It, it's a great observation. So um, if we turn to this uh, passage, we find here that it's about the coming king of Zion. Yeah. So we see that the Messiah is the king of Zion, he's the king of Jerusalem. So we see that there is a very strong affiliation between the coming Messiah and his, um, and his redemption for the nation of Israel. And while we, uh, we see this uh, great proclamation that the daughter of Jerusalem shouts of aloud, rejoices greatly, and then we see that right afterwards in verses 10 and following, we see this, the fulfillment that will come in the future, right? So we see that I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, right? So we haven't seen this come to no. pass yet. Right. So, yeah. so indeed, I mean, uh, it, it, it's like, you know, looking, looking um, into the future, but you see just one, one level of the fulfillment and then you go and you see further. But, so something amazing is happening here in the book of Zechariah. We have other prophets. We see similar prophetic phenomenon in other prophetic books. But in the book of Zechariah, I would say it's one of the most um, evident examples. Yeah, we tend to we tend to dismiss Zechariah because because he's um, he's one of the minor prophets. He's at the end of the Old Testament. You know, I mean, we just, we run through you know Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, and you just you just leave him in there, and you think, oh yeah, at some point, you know, I'll read Isaiah and I'll read Ezekiel, but he's yeah, just one of the minor prophets. But there's you could almost, I mean. 
the, what the other prophets say regarding uh, the, both comings of the Messiah, you could almost encapsulate that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right. It's almost like Zechariah summarizes it. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. So, so in the book of Zechariah, we find both visions for kind of the short-term future of Israel, Jerusalem, Judea. And also we find uh, long-term in terms of the first coming, second coming, and even the millennial kingdom of Christ in the future. Yes. So all of those types of prophecies that are intermingled in the book of Zechariah from chapter 1 through chapter 14. And, uh, you know, people say, oh, it's a minor prophet. Ah, yeah, it's minor because they think it's a minor prophet and it's a minor prophetic message. It's not, yes. it's not yeah. a minor prophet at all in that sense. It's just in that canonical group section of the Bible. But uh, essentially the book is uh, it was given by the prophet Zechariah, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and it has a great prophetic power in it. What's your favorite part of the book? Um, pardon me if you can repeat your question, Errol. What's your favorite part of the book? The favorite part, I would say chapters 12 through 14. Chapters 12 through 14, uh, lots of eschatology, uh, some enigmatic passages, and um, lots of theological insights about the Father and the Son, about God's essence, about the work of the Holy Spirit, about the relationship between the Lord and Israel, the Lord and the nations, um, and the future events which are yet to take place in the nation of Israel, in the physical locations, which are very specifically uh, outlined in those chapters. There's some weird stuff in there because it, it talks about um, the the cities of of the Philistines, Gaza and Ashdod and, and Ashkelon, becoming a new tribe of Jew, of Israel. Mm-hmm. And that's ego. That, hang on, how does that work? Is that uh, symbolic of, is the Philistines being symbolic of the rest of the world being joined with Israel? or it, Because it's, mm. um, is it to Isaiah that also says that uh, Syria and Egypt and Israel, mm-hmm. the three will be one, you know, and, and we, I mean, obviously we haven't seen that, that but that's, that's a little confusing for us because we think there's, Israel as God's chosen people, and then there's the Gentiles as the rest of us. But then you get the specific prophecies about Syria and Egypt joining with Israel. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's an excellent exegetic observation, bro. And what you just mentioned is um, it's not unique to the prophet Zechariah. Uh, we see in other prophetic books, just like you mentioned, Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 19. Right. where we find the prophecy of, of, of about God comforting the neighbors of Israel. And those are very kind of um, hostile neighbors, but God is still merciful. God still extends his love and mercy and grace towards them. So something similar, although not identical, we find in the book of Zechariah, we see that God does care about the neighbors of Israel and he has this very unique plan for each of, for each one of them. So we, so of course, scholars will try to find, you know, some historical fulfillments uh, of, for example, the prophecy about Gaza and Ashkelon, which we could find somewhere maybe. But again, in light of the eschatological context of Zechariah, I do believe that we will see a complete fulfillment of this prophecy in the future. So, uh, so I would interpret this kind of prophecy eschatologically against the backdrop of the entire book of Zechariah. 
I think we have to with some of them because the, when you read through it, there are some you go, yep, the the, the, um, um, the destruction of Tyre, you know, with, mm-hmm. with which we know is the earthquake, and it was it was you know it, God's very specific; it'll be thrown into the sea and all of that. Uh, and I think we dismiss we dismiss Tyre um, overly because it, it's you know, we, it, the Bible doesn't concentrate on the power of the Phoenicians; it, it doesn't come mm-hmm. through uh, when you look at. Uh, world history, you go, oh, the Phoenicians, they were pretty darn big, but it, that doesn't come through biblically. Um, so there are some of the prophecies that we can look at and we go, yes, well, that was fulfilled then. But then there are other, as you say, very specific ones. And you go, well, that hasn't been fulfilled. It must be fulfilled in the future. It must be eschatological end times. Yeah, exactly right. And and, and basically our conversation uh, touches on a very important divide that I encounter uh, within um, evangelical hermeneutical circles. And that's basically the question on how to interpret Bible prophecy. And what I see, there is a growing trend of uh, theologians and and pastors and lay believers who are uh, sidelined by preterism, uh, basically saying that we don't need to expect any of those prophecies to be fulfilled in the future. All of them took place by the by the year 70 CE, first century, the destruction of the second temple, and that's it. There is no futurist interpretation of the Bible. There's How no can they say that? Exactly, exactly, right. And, you know, in February, like about a month ago, maybe a bit more, I debated one guy who is a pastor who lives in Israel. Uh, he has a Pentecostal background, and he turned to be a, a preterist. He was a, a, he was an evangelical futurist. Now he's a full preterist. He denies all of the prophecies that have to come to be fulfilled in the future. Nothing, no no resurrection from the dead. Um, basically, no no event that is described as a future event, no second coming, no millennial kingdom. Nothing. He says that he's already is is given glorified body. That's what he right. believes. Yes, yes. And he was actually, uh, you know, having a debate with me, like like we have a conversation today, and he was coughing during the debate. And I was yeah. thinking to myself, is, is this your glorious body? <laughs> you know, you're sick and you're thinking about... Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, that's and, and it, it's a spiritual deception, in my opinion. And, and, and this guy is also denies the existence of Satan and demons. That's another question that... I mean, yeah. it's a it's mixed bag of spiritual issues. I think that, that occurred in his life. You've got you've and, got and both sides because I know um, when, when we look at um, the unfulfilled prophecies in Scripture, people like um, uh, Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, for one, who is an extreme literalist, mm-hmm. he goes, "This this will literally happen. This will literally happen." And 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 some of them, I look at and I go, um, uh, you know. I can't see that literally taking mm-hmm. place. You know, and and this is the problem I think with prophecy and and even with um, you know, with Daniel. You know, Daniel has these has these weird visions and things, and the, you know, and he says to the angel, "Well, what was that all about?" And the angel goes, "Blah blah blah." And I'm reading it and I go, "Well, that doesn't help at all." You know, and, and some of Zechariah is a bit like that too. You go, "Okay, I'm, I'm looking at this 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 flying scroll that's." Uh, what is it? Nine meters by four meters. That's that's floating mm-hmm. through the air, and you go, "What on earth is that all about?" 
<laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. Right, right. So we have, we have those visions, and some of them are really enigmatic visions. And in the process of studying them, I encounter different interpretations of one vision or another vision. And uh, and it's true that we we can be always very dogmatic about this, you know that and say uh, that's the only interpretation that's the only valid interpretation of this vision. I, I would I wouldn't dare saying that. Yeah. But but on the other hand, what I do notice that we do have important prophetic hints within a vision, and we have other visions that were given to other prophets in the Bible that could help us to better handle and interpret what we are given here in this prophetic book. So we are not completely lost. And so you're not a, you're not talking about interpreting scripture with scripture, are you? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. So that. That's basically one of the rules, right? One of the best yeah. rules in the interpretation, right? Scripture interpreting scripture. And uh, also we have, you know, uh, progressive revelation, right? So we have uh, revelations given by the Lord, for example, uh, in the book of Revelation in the New Testament. And there are many motifs that are utilized in the book of Revelation from the book of Zechariah. So uh, it's an amazing, you know, kind of puzzle that we piece together from different parts of scripture. And then... God does help see what the what is the yeah. intended meaning of a given prophetic um, passage in, in, the, in this prophetic book. How does Zechariah fit in prophetically with Haggai? Because I mean, the two of them were prophesying around the same time, and we read in mm-hmm. I think it's uh, in Nehemiah it says that that you know they when they were rebuilding the temple. Uh, they prospered through the prophesying of of Zechariah and Haggai. So prophetically, how do the two books sit in together? Yeah, yeah, exactly right. But so uh, if we just uh, look uh, in, in, in our Bibles, we see that Haggai precedes the book of Zechariah. So we have Haggai coming first, and then Zechariah, and then Malachi. So we have those three minor prophets uh, that, that overlap uh, chronologically, historically, and theologically. So we, of course, the book of Haggai is one of the shortest books in the Bible. It has just two chapters. But uh, interestingly, and Haggai is uh, that kind of a prophet that also has this messianic anticipation. For example, in Haggai chapter 2, we read in verses 7 through 9, right, that uh, the treasure of all nations shall come in, right? And, and it depends on the, on the reading of the verse and the interpretation, but many see this as an as a messianic prophecy uh, and uh, the coming of Yeshua, Jesus, into the, into the second temple, physically appearing in the temple just like reading in the Gospels, right? Mm. And um, then, of course, we have this interesting uh, figure of Zerubbabel at the end of chapter 2 of Heaven. And we see that in Zechariah chapter um, chapter 3, we have another important figure, and that's Joshua the high priest. So we see that Zerubbabel and Joshua, right, they play some kind of messianic-type roles in those prophetic books of Zechariah. As, as well as in uh, chapter 6 of Zechariah, uh, we have this uh, interesting uh, prophecy about Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest. So Joshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, the Judean governor, the governor of Judah. Um, so we see mm, an, an interesting relationship between the, the political uh, authorities uh, in the days of in the post-exilic era yeah. in Jerusalem um, actually, actually linked or tied with uh, the prophetic ministry of those minor prophets like uh, Haggai and Zechariah, later on Malachi. Uh, 
So we see that those governors and the prophets, they related to each other in some ways. Um, and we see that God worked both with Zerubbabel, with the priesthood and with the prophetic, with the prophetic school uh, yeah. of that time in Jerusalem. So that, that, that's a fascinating study even from a, a social political perspective. So when, when, I mean, if we use Zerubbabel and, I mean, Joshua was the high priest, Zerubbabel was the governor. He was actually, I think he was the, the uh, probably the legal descendant of David mm-hmm. at the right, time. Yeah, yeah. So we know that we know that Haggai and, and Zechariah prophesied to the people at, mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. a, and the problem is the, the word prophesy could be used as encouraged with that. So whether, whether these prophecies were, I can't think, you know, I can't think readings of these prophecies out would be encouraging people to continue building. Um, but there's, there's a play going on there. And I'm, I'm thinking, would, would the prophecies, would these messianic prophecies, would the would the people of Jerusalem at the time would they be reading this? Is this for them at that time, or is it only for us to read in the future? Mm, yeah, it, it, it's an excellent question, Rob. Um, in my studies of biblical prophecy, I noticed uh, that the biblical prophets they orally proclaimed those prophecies in a specific time, in a specific location, most most likely in the area of Jerusalem to their own contemporaries. So, for example, Zechariah and Haggai, they would go and speak to their own people, right? And, and the message would speak to them, right? So in that sense, it was what it was given specifically to a specific group of people, right? Uh, but I don't think that those who would hear those prophecies would, would um, uh, eventually read them as well in a form of some kind of a scroll. I, I don't think it was always the case. Uh, I believe that those prophets would seek later on and they would, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they would write down the, their prophecies, and many of which would not be directly linked or, or um, targeting their primary yeah. audiences. So it's kind of, it's more of an oral proclamation and a prophetic writing of the prophecy for future, gen- for future generations. That's how I see it. Do we take the, um, and I'm asking this, this is one of the questions on behalf of some of the people that are probably watching and listening. Do we take the fact that, I mean, um, Zechariah's prophecies, the first ones came between Haggai 1 and Haggai 2, uh, timing-wise, because we have, you know, in the, in the first mm-hmm. year of Darius and, and second year and all that sort of stuff. Is, do we take that as progressive prophecy or does the timeline not make an awful lot of difference to what God is saying? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's another good question with chronology. And then again, with chronological questions, uh, even in the post-exilic era, you don't find uh, one definitive answer among biblical historians. Um, you know, the, the whole question of dating and, and uh, you know, uh, pointing uh, the specific time and date, it's not always accurate. At times it can it can help, you know, giving us, giving us some kind of uh, marks, you know, okay. Yeah. The first of Nisan or the fourteenth of Av. Uh, so I would say, for example, with the book of Ezekiel, it's it's more, more helpful because it's one composition in the book of Ezekiel, and there we have more uh, of this kind of a chronological development. But here with Haggai, Zechariah, uh, Malachi, and the in the post-exilic books like of Ezra and Nehemiah, it's more much more complex, and there are different approaches in biblical scholarship on how to date. 
um, specific oracles given by the prophets. So again, we we can take one example or a couple examples and then examine each one of them to see what really takes place there. But I wouldn't give some kind of a categorical answer and say it won't be helpful or it helps in, in all instances. So it's more nuanced in this case, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's it's because we can look at it in that way. We we can try and put it together, but it's it, sometimes it's not helpful. And one thing that I've got to remember with with prophecy when I'm reading it is, uh, you know, it's it's fascinating to read, and you can look at it, and and we have to use. Um, with apologies to those that say all you need is the scriptures, we have to use commentaries and other things to say this thing has already happened and been fulfilled in this. Um, the uh, the four craftsmen in the beginning of uh, Zechariah that deal to the four nations, uh, mm-hmm. and and e- even the cities that Greece deals to, which are in order, of, which I always find this fascinating that God does this. The order that the cities are mentioned is the order that Alexander the Great dealt to them. Um, as he went through his campaigns, but we can look at that and we can get fascinated with the timeline and forget that that you know to use the the title the full title of the book of Revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. This this is to reveal Messiah to us, to reveal an aspect of God to us, not just to say, "Hey, this has happened and this hasn't happened." Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So I, I agree with you. So here, here we have we have to keep this kind of a hermeneutic or theological balance uh, when dealing with prophetic books of the Bible. Yeah. On the one hand, we, we always have to remember that we uh, that God is speaking to me today as well. The Holy Spirit wants to tell me something through each, through each verse, through each biblical prophecy. Of course, it was targeted, it was spoken to those ancient people, definitely. But the Holy Spirit, God, the God of Israel, wanted us to have this for our own instruction. So while we are, I'm very much interested in this kind of a research, oh, when this was fulfilled and the other world wasn't fulfilled, it's, it's, it's a fair question and we have to study and search the scriptures. But at the same time, uh, we have to keep in mind that we, we, we want to see how God is speaking to us today through those prophecies. And like we read in the New Testament, it's written that we are not to quench prophecy, right? Uh, that's why I do believe that each prophetic book, each prophetic oracle is given uh, for our instruction as well. And we have to be very sensitive and attentive to the voice of God, to the biblical text, to study the and see uh, how it changes my life. So yeah. the biblical prophets are prophets, prophets of transformation. They're not just some kind of uh, fortune tellers telling, oh, that's going to happen for me. But they are uh, prophets, prophets of uh, agents of transformation. And if they're agents of transformation, God is willing to transform me and change me, my heart, my mind, my attitude, bring me to my knees and uh, change me from, from the inside out. Yeah, I mean, the, the, we know the first rule of systematic theology and interpreting the Bible is what did the original hearers or what did the original readers understand the speaker or the writer to mean? Right. But we have to continue with that and say, what are you saying to me, Lord? When I'm reading mm-hmm. this passage, that is difficult to understand. And of, of you know, uh, maybe somebody signed up for your course and they've gone through and they understand Zechariah mm-hmm. a little bit better and, the, and and these things. But then you still have to sit. And when you're reading it, you go, "What are you saying to me?" Yeah, exactly. Right. 
Yes, and, and what else I want to just mention, uh, Rob, that uh, we read in Luke chapter 24, uh, when uh, Yeshua was risen from the dead, he was walking with his disciples on the road to Emmaus, right? And he was opening up the scriptures to his disciples. Yes. So I believe that the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, Ruach HaKodesh, is opening up the scriptures so we can clearly see the Messianic whole. And that's why studying the book of Zechariah uh, from this kind of a prophetic messianic perspective is very much helpful and is in line with Yeshua's uh, example given to us in the Gospels. Yeah. I um, I like, I mean, one of the most misquoted verses of prophecy is Jeremiah 29, 11, which everybody throws mm -hmm. around. You know, I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord plans to give you hope in the future. And I, I, I point to people to the first 10 verses of Jeremiah 29 and say, do you want to, you know, do you want to put that in context? Um, and for those that haven't read it, the context, the first 10 verses is that the prophecy is given to the exiles in Babylon who were saying, we're only here for a little while. It's okay. Don't even unpack your bags, you know, because we'll be back mm -hmm. home shortly. And God says, no, this is going to be 70 years. Marry off your children, marry off your grandchildren, plant gardens, do this. But you know, then you get to verse 11, but it's okay because I know the plans that I have for you. They are plans. And to me, that gives a, a greater context to, to prophecies like Zechariah, like Haggai, like Ezekiel, where you go, I look at the world at the moment and, and see what's going on and, and where is God in all of this? And I can imagine the exiles in Babylon thinking that, but the prophecy comes to us. God says, it's okay. It's, I've got it under control. Uh, and I think to me that's that's one of the greatest things that we can get out of uh, out of prophecy, particularly the messianic prophecies, is God mm -hmm. saying it's every, everything is actually going to plan. It's all under control. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly, exactly. And um, we find something very, very amazing. For example, in Zechariah chapter twelve, uh, verses one through nine, and then ten and following, we see that uh, the God of Israel is the deliverer of His people. So he's not just proclaiming uh, calamities, uh, destruction, uh, judgments. We see God as the God of deliverance, of salvation, of redemption. And uh, something amazing we see, for example, in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, I would say that's one of the clearest, most yeah. straightforward messianic prophecies that we we'll ever find in the whole Bible. And we find this amazing prophecy, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for his only child and deep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Amen. And, and, and interestingly, well, we see that the first half of verse, of verse 10 is quoted in John 19 uh, because Jesus yep. was crucified. And the people of Jerusalem were looking under him. But is it the whole fulfillment of the prophecy? I don't believe so, because we have the context and we haven't ever seen a, such a national level repentance and revival in, in, in the Jewish nation. Yep. So we have to believe, biblically speaking, that this prophecy will come to pass in the future with the return of Yeshua from heaven. Yeah, and we've got to hold on to that. I mean, when Jesus's great uh, fulfillment prophecy word, you know, the spirit of the Lord is upon me for he's anointed me. Uh, and we need to remember that's only half the prophecy. He, he actually stopped halfway through that passage 
Mm-hmm. I said, this first part here, the second part is yet to be fulfilled. And uh, and as you say, it's the same thing we see, you know, partial fulfillment or a beginning of a fulfillment at Acts chapter 2, mm-hmm. later fulfillment mm-hmm. elsewhere. There's um, the, one passage that uh, that always fascinates me and uh, in Zechariah is regarding tabernacles because mm-hmm. I think it's at the end of, is it at the end of chapter 14 or... Um, right, 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 right end he, of chapter 14. Yeah, so where God mm-hmm. says uh, all the nations will come up to Israel or to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, and those that don't come up, I will deal to them and uh, I will punish them for not coming up. And, you know, in my mind, and I've got to admit, I haven't researched this yet, maybe you're going to cover it in your classes, but what's so darned important about the Feast of Tabernacles during the millennium, because that's what he's talking about, that mm-hmm. he requires all the nations to come up there because there's you know when he when he says to the Israelites there are three feasts that they have to come up to it's it's Passover Pentecost and Tabernacles mm-hmm. why is he so focused on Tabernacles in the millennium mm-hmm. yeah it's it's a great question and I'm in the process of studying this Rob um, <laughs> basically I can share some observations so far hopefully I will have even more. Um, when we come to this uh, discussion in, in class. But um, I do think that it has to do with um, the, the prophetic uh, the prophetic uh, perspective of the biblical feasts, right? Uh, for example, we find in Colossians, Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 17, where Paul speaks about, uh, you know, not to be, not to judge those who, uh, you know, celebrate or don't celebrate, right? It's the usual, it's the standard interpretation yep. of the verses, right? And interestingly, it's, it speaks there about, about the shadow, right? The shadow of the future. And and, and I do see here that the, the, the Feast of uh, Tabernacles, Sukkot, is this, kind of a fe- is this kind of a feast of the future, right? Why? Uh, because in the biblical times, when the Lord uh, uh, actually redeemed the people of Israel, from Egypt, right? There, there were others who joined them from the Egyptians, yeah. right? So there were non-Israelites who would join the nation of Israel, who would join the Commonwealth of Israel, and together they they were considered to be God's nation, God's people, right? So it's not always just the ethnic aspect of it, but it's also the spiritual one, right? And they were also to celebrate the feast of Tabernacles. Yes. So, so in that sense. Zechariah 14 is kind of is a universal replay of the ancient Exodus from Egypt and the joining of those nations from, from Egypt who would celebrate together the feast of the Lord in his holy land. Which which so, is pointed to by right. Zechariah too, because he, when he talks about those cities of, of the Philistines, Gaza and Ashdod, etc., mm-hmm. he says mm-hmm. they will be a they will join and be another tribe of Judah, same as the Jebusites joined, which I didn't realize until I actually read that this morning as I was rereading it. Mm-hmm. Um, when David mm-hmm. took Jerusalem, it seems that the Jebusites right, right. uh, were assimilated into Judah. Uh, yes, yes, that's that's true. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. yeah, so this so, is this so, is looking at all the nations being coming right, coming right. together. Uh, right, right, exactly, exactly right. So, uh, and then we could ask the question, why God highlights the Feast of Sukkot, right? Why? And, and it, it, it has also to do with the incarnation, uh, with the first coming of Yeshua to the world, because in John chapter 1, we read that the word 
dwelled among us, right? And we have this Greek verb, skinel, yes. right? That actually to dwell, to, to, to tabernacle with us, right? So, yes. so we see this, this tabernacling of God with humans when God uh, uh, came in the flesh, right? God appeared in the flesh, First Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. We see how it all plays together, right? God tabernacling, the people of Israel tabernacling, the nations joining them, right? And it's not just even for the millennium, which I do believe Zechariah 14 is about the millennium yes. of Christ in the future. But I do also see uh, that in Revelation chapter 21, 22, when we have the vision of, uh, of the eternity in New Jerusalem, in heavens and the earth, it speaks there about God tabernacling with his people. So, yes. so there is something really, really significant and uh, really close to God's heart about the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a, it's a, um, I, I've got a message that I, that I preach on uh, God's holiness with the original tabernacle. He had to sequester himself away because he was so holy unless his sin, his holiness broke out on them. And mm-hmm. yet now that God dwells within us, tabernacles, not just, not just with us, I mean, and Jesus says that with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, you know, to the disciples, the Holy Spirit has been with you, but he will be in you. And uh, and that's just fascinating. Egal, it's been great. Listen, um, g- give me some of the mechanics of the course that you're running. Uh, how's, it, how's it going to run? Is it a Zoom course? Yes, yes. So it's going to be a live uh, online Zoom course. Um, every session of the course will be recorded so students will have access to those video files for themselves. Uh, students will also uh, be given some additional materials. There will be time for Q&A, for prayer time. And I truly anticipate this is uh, to be a time of uh, spiritual growth, even for myself and for uh, the for, for the class. Yep. I, uh, yeah, so it's something that I pray about and I do uh, in-depth study of the book of Zechariah so that I can uh, divide the word of God in a proper way. With his help. All right. So we're going to put the uh, the details in the description with this podcast. If you'd like to contact Egal and uh, and begin that course, uh, which would be great. And of course, if you if you take part in it live, uh, it, it, as Egal said, it, it will be recorded. But if you take a part in it live, then you can ask your questions as well and get more out of it. Egal, thank you so much uh, for this. Uh, and as I say, I'm I'm seriously considering signing up for that course. It's at a good time for me on a Monday morning. Uh, so I hope to see you shortly. Yeah, thank you very much. I truly enjoyed our conversation, Rob. God bless you. Thank us. you. God bless you too. Thank you for watching and thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and click the bell uh, to make sure that you are alerted next time we upload a podcast. <laughs>